Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code IsaacArthur. I think we should be going live right about this second, so welcome everybody to our November uh, end of the month Q&A session, and we'll start taking questions right away, but first before we jump into those, and while we make sure the audio and visual stuff is fine, um, we do have our upcoming schedule for December, you'll see that flickering off to my left in just a moment or so, and there was also just an interview with John Michael Godier. we posted part one. And uh, part two just came out last night after the Flat Earths episode. The Megastructuralist Flat Earths episode, I just want to emphasize there. So again, we had a lot of commentary on that video about uh, the Flat Earth theory, not really related to the episode. <laughs> so, all right. so let's go ahead and get started with questions. Uh, and while those are coming up, as everyone says hello, again, hello everybody. Um... We will try to hit everybody's questions as much as possible. If you've had yours out there once or twice, you know, go ahead and repeat it a third time at most. But if no one sees it by then, that probably means either we're not going to take that question or, well, basically that we're not going to take that question. All right. We have a question from Harrison and Sophia. Can you talk about cryonics? We did in sleeper ships, of course, but I have been thinking about doing a more detailed episode on that at some point in time. Cause again, sleeper ships was really more about its application to travel. Whereas um, with cryonics in general, there's so much more that it has an impact on. Kind of like we did with life extension. We did the life extension episode and then we did the science of aging episode about a year later. And I think if we did one like that, we might want to talk to somebody like Alcor. That's one of the bigger companies that does cryonics and see if they wanted to participate because working with SENS for the science of aging episode was really very handy. As to whether or not it will work, I mean, that's always kind of hard to say because there's so much repair work that you have to do to something after it's been frozen, although it's really a little bit more like being dehydrated. Uh, you're going to have to do a lot of repair work, and as we often said, that probably is going to fall back on either some genetic tinkering with humans directly or nanotechnology. And uh, someone said the live stream just dropped. Is the live stream good? Can someone hit uh, yes if that's the case? Pausing while we find out there's a technical glitch. I'm going to assume for the moment it is actually good and just keep talking. Uh, Anyway, with cryonics, if we can actually make that work, if we can wake people up, right now we can freeze them. That's not a problem. We've been able to freeze them for quite some time. Freezing them in a way that they'll actually be potentially restorable, that's still tricky. And of course, the part about actually restoring them is a whole other story. It is essentially resurrection. And whatever you had when you went and got frozen is going to be a bit of an issue. Um... You know, you have to be able to cure whatever it is, and typically speaking, people use this as a last resort. So I do think it's one of those things that we're going to figure out probably in the next century or so, but it's one of those things where I don't think you'd use it to extend your life. And again, we'll talk about that more in a future episode, and I think we'll probably do another episode on that. All right. Question from Roach. I heard someone mention slowing time by placing someone between high-gravity gradients, canceling each other out. Uh, Yeah, actually, it was me. (laughs) Is there a detectable time dilation in deep caverns? There is actually more time dilation if you get deeper and closer to the center of the Earth. A slight misunderstanding people sometimes have about that, it's not the force of gravity that's slowing down, it's more like the potential. When you're looking at how much you slow down, uh, very loosely, if you work out what the escape velocity is from wherever you're at, 
then treat that as your velocity under special relativity. That's more or less the amount you're slowing down, the Lorentz factor you'll calculate out from that. Uh, that's not the best way to do that for accuracy, but it will always give you a pretty good uh, approximate answer. There's very little on Earth. Like, if you're the center of the Earth, there's no gravity at the center of the Earth. Same for the center of the Sun, there's no gravity. It's all spread around you, old Gauss's law. Forces are canceling out. But there's still that gravitic potential that you'd have to use to escape from there. The escape velocity from the center of the Earth is very high compared to the surface of the Earth. It's still really tiny, though, and uh, going to a deep cavern or up on top of a tall mountain... If you bring an atomic clock with you, you will eventually, you know, get a digit off, but it's very minimal. And uh, when we're talking about doing something like slowing time down to, uh, you know, near standstill for someone for stasis, you'd be talking about a force, a potential on par with that of a, you know, near black hole or neutron star to have any real effect. And if you can make two fields like that, that are, you know, not omnidirectional, uh, basically like an electric plate as it were only for gravity, then you could theoretically put someone in stasis that way. And if you did it correctly, they'd survive the process. <laughs> uh, we have a question from Matthew Strahman. What are your thoughts on von Neumann probes driven by digitized brains like the ones featured in the Bob sci-fi books? Uh, that would be Dennis E. Taylor's book series. I think I've recommended that quite a few times. Um, we're going to be talking about von Neumann probes very heavily at the end of December. It's our last episode for the year, Seeding the Stars. So I, I don't want to go into too much on that today, but it is definitely an option. The one mistake people make with it, though, is while it is advantageous um, compared to a generation ship, it's not nearly as much so, as we'll see in that, uh, in that episode, as people tend to think. So it's, it's more like an option you'd use if you're already comfortable with that kind of digitized life, not one you'd use as the only method of getting to the stars. Uh, we have a que question from Malton. Isaac, do you have an opinion about the standard model and where our modern physics is going? I do not consider myself to be a good enough theorist. Uh, my area was biophysics anyway, uh, for theory, not, uh, not cosmology. Um, the standard model is certainly held up surprisingly well. I know a lot of things like Susie, uh, supersymmetry have, uh, had some blows in recent years. They're very good models, but I'm just, I'm not qualified to really say which one is right or wrong. Nobody really can yet at this point in time, but uh, there's quite a few people who have more legitimate opinions on that than me. As I say, what's proven so far, the standard model holds up very well, especially with the Higgs boson added in there. We will have to be adjusted. There's no getting around that. There's nothing on there for dark matter yet, and we're going to need something for that. There's nothing for the graviton specifically yet, and we're going to need that when we figure that out better. Um, Alex asks, if Mars core is if Mars core is cooled, will that allow for a depth of mining not possible on Earth, and will that lead to new discoveries? You can always mine deeper on smaller planets. Uh, there's less gravity, uh, less temp temperature gradient for the most part, um, and just in general, you can. It's so much easier to actually shore things up, which is one of the things that keeps us from drilling much deeper. Uh, that's another thing we'll be talking about in December, sorry, not December, uh, in January's Subterranean Cities episode, um, which I just finished writing. Um, and it is a bit of an issue. There are things people tend to forget about when you drill really deep in places like that, too, is that you start getting pressure problems. On Earth, the air pressure is going to go up. It could become like a hyperbaric chamber if you get low enough, assuming you're not dealing with all the heat. In a place like Mars, that could actually be advantageous, though, because instead of trying to tailform the entire planet, um, to where you can walk around breathing, 
you can just go into deep caves or tunnels where there's enough air sitting on top of you to cause regular pressure. And so that might be one of the first places that we actually make open air environments there would be uh, very, very deep craters or uh, deep tunnel shafts that we can uh, fill with air and they'll leak, but you know we can dome them over on top. And that will give us a decent pressure without having to actually just do a pressurized dome effect. <clears throat> Question from Malk. What would be the best location for an Earth-based mass driver um, in whatever country has the energy to actually run one? Um, I, I keep forgetting the name of that mountain, Chimborazo in Ecuador. It's usually considered one of the better locations because it's not too far from the coast. It does have to launch over land. Usually you like to have these things on the eastern coast that goes over the sea, but uh, it would be mostly directly over Brazil's Amazon, so a crash is very unlikely to hit a building. Um, that would be kind of the ideal place if location was all that mattered because the equator, you get that spin assist for launching and you also get, um, just a little bit of an extra altitude bump. And it's not so much about you're a little bit closer to space as you have less atmosphere to go through. So that's probably the ideal location, but it's minimal enough that you can pretty much put whenever you want to. And we do have the advantage with these because there's no huge rocket blast and they take off that where mass drivers, space elevators, things like that are concerned, not space, well, space elevators too, but orbital rings, things like that. You can put the tether directly into a city, the launch port directly into a city and people can leave directly from there. And that's very advantageous because you don't spend hours driving or flying to the spaceport. Um, Mad Skills asks, can you discuss Kugelblitz black holes and their application for propulsion? We did actually do a black hole starships episode way back in, uh, I guess it'll be season two. Um, we are going to redo that episode though, and uh, probably in early spring. I know Jeremy's been working on some very nice graphics for that. And with a lot of the older episodes, it's not just the visual and audio quality is, is a little bit bad. And again, Magor Structures Flat Horse yesterday was a partial redo of the old Discworlds episode, also from early season two. They are, I don't like to just do a straight repeat of an episode, but there's always more to talk about. And a lot of those early episodes were very rushed um, in terms of trying to compress too much information into something. So uh, I do think Black Hole Starships, which is actually a two-part episode, would be one of the ones we end up redoing. And uh, we'll be looking at some other uses for black holes there besides just Kugelblitz black holes. And that was the focus there was Kugelblitz black holes. Uh, um, Josh asks, what is your take on how bad climate change might actually be? Ah, a controversial one. And how optimistic, pessimistic are you that humanity and nations can work together to one reasonable goal? I'm pragmatic about international cooperation. I don't believe in ever basing a plan on everybody coming together and for big friendly hugs. Humans are surprisingly reasonable. Uh, that's one of the mistakes people make when trying to look at the international scene is this assumption that everybody is crazy about for themselves. Uh, they are, for the most part, mostly worried about their country. That's the job of whatever leader is in charge there. But they often are willing to work together to good ends. And you can check that every time there's a you know crisis with refugees. We are pretty good about sending supplies to assist these days. And not too many violent wars or conquest anymore either. There are still some, unfortunately, but there are a decent amount of diplomatic, uh, sane and healthy diplomatic process these days. As to climate change itself, uh, you would have to talk to a climatologist about how severe it could get. Usually we would say that um, the really extreme cases like uh, the greenhouse Venus effect is off the table. There really shouldn't be too much reason to think that could cause something as bad as a sterilization of the planet. But we are really new to weather modeling, so it's, it's very difficult to say how 
bad or not bad, it might get. There could be some positives out of it. There could be a lot of negatives out of it. There's almost always going to be some sort of silver lining out of it, but that's one of those things you'd have to talk to a climatologist. I keep to my own niche on something like that, especially a topic as controversial as that. Um, let's see. Question from Stella Mimo. How big do you think interstellar ships would be? Um, kilometers across. Uh, sorry, not across deep. I don't think you'd typically go up about 500 meters wide for them unless you're getting much, much bigger. Um, you could send an entire Neo cylinder, but I don't think in most cases you would. A big thing to remember with a spaceship is once you arrive, you're not done. Um, the trip, we always talk about how long the trip is. That's probably in most cases not going to be the longest portion of the stay in that ship. Once you arrive on that ship, you park that thing in orbit or park that around a good asteroid nearby, maybe that you'll steer into orbit for raw materials. And that's your home for centuries. I mean, you might set up domed environments, but you're more likely to set up more rotating habitats around that planet while you terraform it, assuming that's even your goal. So you don't want to go too small on something like that. Um, and most of the technology that would make it easier to, uh, <clears throat> to live in a smaller one, to make that trip in a smaller one, or to access resources on the other end, also lets you make bigger ships easier. And that, again, is something we'll talk about more and see in the stars on December 27th. We have a question from Ryan Agape. I know you're fo- <clears throat> excuse me. I know you focus mostly on hard science. We, we do actually cover a lot of sci-fi. But have you considered possible psychological effects or requirements for long-term space travel? Um, that's we certainly have talked about it. I'm not a psychologist, so I, I do tend to focus more on on the physical end of things. It's a big concern. Um, anybody who thinks that you can send people, uh, especially in small groups that wouldn't reflect Dunbar's number or bigger, you know, a population of hundreds or more people, anybody who sends folks in a sub-100 number to some location far from home and isn't expecting that to cause a lot of psychological or morale issues is fooling themselves, uh, even if you take the cream of the crop. And that's why we, we do put astronauts through such a horrendous selection process. It's not just the scarcity of, of slots available. Um, anyone who is sent on those missions is going to have a rough time psychologically. Um, you are going to want a psychologist or a chaplain on board, probably as their secondary job in most cases, unless it's a bigger crew. Um, one thing that uh, Star Trek TNG got right was having the counselor on the ship, although it was a little bit weird that the counselor sat right next to the captain. Um, but uh, you would definitely have someone on board the ship who acted in that capacity. And we've almost always had that in any base that you go um, far away from home. There's almost always something serving that role. And as to what those would be, I mean, we can't know till we start sending people out there or might get new types of illnesses like space crazy. But um, we do have a pretty good idea what some of the basic ones will be from a lot of the outposts that we've done over the years. Military, scientific, or frontier outposts will tell us a lot about what we need to screen for. Uh, another question from Malk. If we were to, say, overcome the numerous problems with the Alcuvier drive, what would be next? Um, I don't think we're ever going to overcome the uh, issues with that. Alcuvier doesn't think we're going to overcome those issues. We do have an episode on that. It's the Warp Drives episode. And, um, you know, I know everyone's very fascinated with the drive. It would be awesome if it worked, uh, even if the sublight version worked. But I really don't think that's going to happen. And, uh, again, see that episode with some of the details on that. But if you do get an FTL system, that obviously opens up a whole new ton of possibilities that we're familiar with from sci-fi. Uh, question from Anonymous. Are you related to Isaac Asimov? 
my parents did actually name me after him, and actually, I suppose we all technically related to both the Escanzi and it's a relatively small gene pool, uh, which would include Einstein and Sagan, I guess, too. Um, but, uh, so only very distantly, I have Russian Jewish blood on my uh, one side of my family, so, uh, and he was a Russian Jewish immigrant. Um, but, uh, I'm named after him and Newton, so, but not to my knowledge in any way related beyond just the similar ethnic background. Uh, David McGrath, could you touch briefly on your service with the army? What units were you with? Uh, you know, you're typically with a lot of different units during the time you're there, but you tend to have one unit that you always think of as being your unit. And for me, that was, uh, Bravo 23FA, uh, Field Artillery stationed out of Gießen, Germany. And, uh, the whole battalion, 23FA, uh, 2nd Battalion, 3rd Field Artillery Regiment attached to the 1st Brigade, uh, and the 1st Armored Division, though we got attached to quite a few other people too. Um, I think I have patches. You get a, you get a patch you can wear on your shoulder for each unit you serve with, each division. I think I've got one for, uh, 101, uh, 3rd Infantry, 1st Armored, obviously. Uh, we actually have one we're not, we didn't wear, but we used to teach the Marines about because we went from 2nd Recon there. Um, the Marines aren't, uh, don't wear them on their shoulders, so they, uh, a bit of a difference there. Um, as to what, uh, I mean, the military is a, uh, it's a lot like college. You have a lot of different memories, good and bad, and, uh, um, there's not too much I would say under this context about it, maybe some other time. Uh, my first sergeant, who I was apprenticed to quite a lot, uh, and who actually has something like 30 weapons patents on the, on the records, uh, uh, Sergeant Major Dennis J. Woods did actually write a book about it, uh, the Black Flag Journals. Um, and, uh, I have mentioned a couple of times there, though he misspelled my last name. Um, and that tells you pretty much everything my unit did as well, you know, during my time with it. So, um, it was also a really horrible movie that was made about the unit before I joined, uh, it, uh, called Gunner's Palace, um, that we all hate, but so it's a documentary made from when the unit was in Baghdad before I uh, joined it with it. We were up in, for my term, when Telefal, which is uh, up north by Missoula, and then down in Ramadi during the surge. Um, and yeah, that's about the extent of it. They again see the black flag journals if you want more details about that. <clears throat> Got a question from Zan. What is your opinion on Elon Musk's Neuralink? And do you see yourself getting one if it becomes publicly available? The trick about Neuralink is that there's really not much information yet. Uh, it's definitely a thing to be explored, but right now it all seems to be on the planning board. How do you interface with something with a human's mind? Um, it's not going to be easy. When they can actually start doing that, then we can start... You know, until you actually have computers... You can't talk about using smartphones or laptops. It's premature. And I think something like Neuralink is still decades off. Uh, it'd be nice if it came sooner, and I would not be amongst the first people to get one. I certainly wouldn't be amongst the, the holdouts against it, but uh, almost every piece of new convenient technology, I've always been one of the people who held off for a few years, which might be considered ironic, but uh, like I didn't get a smartphone until my sister forced me to, and uh, she stole my flip phone, which I was very fond of. Um, and I actually didn't get a smartphone until she talked me into it, too, because uh, I hated beepers. And... Uh, so I do tend to be a bit of a hoard out on a lot of the convenience technology. Um, and I, it's good to see, you know, a cultural builds up around technology and you get a lot of troubleshooting. And I wouldn't want to be amongst that first chunk that did that. Um, Jonathan Cooney asks, do you think we will get vacuum? I'm not sure what the question says. Do you think we'll get vacuum raccoons or a space elevator first? Uh, I, 
<laughs> I, I don't think the space elevator will be one of the first things we get. Um, but uh, oh, a vacuum oh, and a rocket balloon combination. Um, I don't really see those working out too well just because there's so much pressure. We were talking about Elon Musk a moment ago, and uh, one of the objections of the Hyperloop is trying to build something like that where it's a vacuum with pressure outside. Uh, submarines are an example of that, but it's a little bit different than a pressurized can or a pipe. We have a lot of pipelines and things like that that are under very high pressure for you know thousands of kilometers. Um, trying to build a large object that has one atmosphere difference on the outside is actually quite tricky, and the active support technique you'd use for that would pretty much imply you already could do something like an orbital ring, which is just easier at that point. Uh, question from Nick Ball. Um, love the Foundation series. Uh, can you recommend more sci-fi series that focus on future political systems? Um, I think I've recommended Alistair Reynolds quite a few times. Um, Peter Hamilton's Commonwealth Saga is also a good one for some of that. As to... Uh, you know, it's funny with the uh, Star Wars movie, Phantom Menace, everyone always complained that they hated the Senate scene, which uh, to me wasn't very good, but the boy in politics part, and I actually kind of enjoy that. Not as much as the lightsaber duels, but uh, I didn't find that to be one of the flaws in that movie, and of course there was quite a lot of flaws in that film, so that wasn't one of them in my eyes, though. Um, probably Peter Hamilton's Conwell Saga, the only one that comes to mind at the moment, though there are plenty of them to do that. Uh, problem being politics is, I guess I can still call it my day job, uh, usually a lot more complex and a, a lot more boring than most people tend to think it is in many respects. And authors tend to get it wrong a lot. Heinlein would be another good one to look at. Starship Troopers, I, he does the same thing there where I don't really agree with a lot of the conclusions he draws, but, uh, Heinlein would be a very good one for that. And then I guess if you want to go on the far spectrum, um, Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, or, uh, or for that matter, Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars Trilogy, both fairly heavy on the politics, um, uh, especially uh, Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> so, all right, let me scroll down and get our next question. Um, yeah, the Flat Earth Society thanks me for my support. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I knew there was going to be an uptick on the Flat Earths episode uh, of people discussing the Flat Earth theory, but I, I was expecting it to just be... Uh, an increased minority, not uh, the vast majority of the comments on there. And I shouldn't say I'm a little disappointed by that, but uh, it was not a episode intended to really discuss that specifically. Uh, it was also a polling one that uh, people had picked out. So now I'm having hesitation about redoing that. But uh, hoop worlds, hopefully donut plants, will get uh, a little bit more uh, on-topic discussion. Um, let's see. Question from Kane Wright. Did you become scientifically inspired as a child? Uh, if so, what did it? That's actually, you know, in hindsight, because uh, I didn't actually know who I was named after until I graduated from college. I was sitting with my mother at, uh, at a restaurant afterwards, and all my friends were out for the bar was drinking. I was still under 21. I couldn't come join them to drink. Uh, for those of you all in the United States, 21 is the legal drinking age. And so I was with my mom afterwards, and I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I, did you think I was going to go for this field? And I just graduated with a degree in physics. And she said, oh, yeah, well, I mean, we named you after that. And I said, what? And uh, she said, well, Isaac Albert Arthur, Newton Einstein. I thought that was for asthma. She said, well, that too. Um, I asked my sister about that later, my older sister, and she started laughing. <laughs> so, but um, so I guess in a way, I was always kind of exposed to that in hindsight. But I always remember it as when I was a kid, I got really into Greek mythology. Uh, when I was about five, I was at the library reading every last Greek mythology book I could get. 
and I found a book on astronomy. It was in the wrong place, and I dutifully went and put it back in the right section over in the astronomy, but I glanced through it while I was doing that, and so many of the names were familiar, you know, the various Greek and Roman gods versus the various astronomical things. I got to reading them, and then uh, very appropriately, there was a, I can't remember the name of the series, but it was a heavily illustrated children's book series by Isaac Asimov. I think it's out of print, but it might still be available. And um, I fell in love with that right away. It was it was great, and uh, that that got me very interested in astronomy for years to come. Um, <clears throat> question: Would you volunteer for a colony ship? No, um, I don't even like to get on airplanes. It's very rare for me to even leave my uh, my home area anymore. I did all my traveling in Wander Yall when I was in my twenties. I got to see many different continents and many different countries, and uh, I'm very fond of home. I don't even like to leave the county anymore. <laughs> um, there's always going to be a lot of people who want to go, and I would I would much rather a slot like that went to somebody who actually wanted to, to go on a long voyage to elsewhere. I like my home. Uh, question, do you play chess? Not anymore. Um, actually, about the same age I was getting into astronomy and Greek mythology, I, I used to play chess a lot with my grandfather and uncles. And uh, then I had a neighbor for a while, John Orgel, who was, uh, I was about to say a chess master, but I think he was ranked as an A. And uh, I used to uh, hang out at his house all the time and we play. And I did go to quite a few tournaments back then. Uh, I remember I won one of the youth ones in Cleveland, but I used to get hammered pretty badly whenever I play anybody who was an A rank or a master rank. I did play a grandmaster once and he stomped all over me, of course. Uh, I don't play it so much anymore though because I, I like a random factor in games. Um, I play chess sometimes, I play poker sometimes, but I tend to play a lot more strategy games. Uh, Warhammer 40k was always one I was very fond of, or Battletech for anyone who remembers the old, uh, old FASA game. Just because I like that mixture of random chaos that you get from throwing some dice for it, but mixed with strategy, and so I tend to play games like that. Although I'm usually good for any board game that uh, that I have a chance to play. We often will just find one of us who have played before, so we played one time, read the rules, and play that, and that's a lot of fun. Uh, let's see, next question. <clears throat> How much of a coffee geek do you consider yourself? Uh, I don't have really a huge... Coffee drinker is probably people tend to think, um, you know, I'm not exactly addicted to this stuff. I probably go through about three cups a day, uh, maybe four. I've had times where I've gone through is a couple pots a day, but uh, it varies a lot. And no, I'm not really a big one for like espresso. Um, I'm trying to think of what I drink now, but I got really used to drinking Maxwell House in the service, which is awful coffee. It was almost always burned and... Um, <laughs> Uh, so I have very low standards on coffee these days. Caffeine is the big one. Um, Wickus van der Meer asks, would it ever be worth building a solar system version of Starlink? Let me think on that one a little bit. Uh, question from Curious Discourse. Hey, Arthur, just want to say I love these live stream uh, sessions. That is not a question. <laughs> uh, question, have you ever considered restarting your PhD? If so, what area do you think you would study? No. Um, you know, I mean, I, I meant to either finish it up in the army. A lot of people in the military go OCS. I enlisted, by the way. Um, but, you know, it's very common for people who already have a degree to go OCS, to go become an officer afterwards. And a lot of times they'll have you finish up a master's or a doctorate while you're uh, a junior lieutenant since you already have some experience. Um, and I kind of assumed I was going to do that. But when I decided to leave the service, that was pretty much the end of it. I thought, well, I, I figured I was going to go back and finish the PhD. But there was a time and a place for that in life. And I, I do not want to personally go back and do that. 
Um, as for what field, it wouldn't be biophysics. Um, that's a good portion of the reason I left. Um, I know it wasn't interesting enough field in many respects, but it didn't entrance me the way that we thought it was going to, uh, in the post-genome product area of, uh, the early 2000s. Um, I do kind of miss the, uh, the environment to some degree. It was always fun having other people to discuss the topics with, but I've got that again these days just as well. So, um, question, did you read Stanislav Lem books? I have read Solaris and a couple other ones. Um, you know, a lot of them only came into English translations in the last decade. Uh, Solaris, of course, is a classic and he's done a lot of other good works. Uh, it was a Siberiad and, um, you know, I can't remember some of the other titles at the moment. He's certainly a good author. I'd recommend to a lot of people, but he's not one of my personal favorites. Uh, Michael Kozovis, sorry if I mispronounced that, asks, what are your thoughts on free will? I think you once mentioned compatibilism, which doesn't make much sense to me. I think compatibilism doesn't make a lot of sense to most people, but it does seem to be a very popular one on review. You kind of have to dig into it. Compatibilism is the concept that you do have free will, but at the same time, you are heavily influenced by what goes on around you. And it's not so much that it's popular. In, it's the one that most philosophers subscribe to, but it's not popular in that it sounds good or makes a lot of sense, but more on the fact that it covers both bases. You're not really going to accept any scenario that um, does not permit free will. There's no point in even discussing an option where free will doesn't exist, except as a thought experiment. Um, but at the same time, you can't bury your head in the sand and pretend that your brain isn't something that we could affect, uh, both by conversation and logic, as well as exterior things like hitting you upside the head with a hammer or, uh, maybe, you know, using an MRI machine on you to change your thoughts. Obviously a more sophisticated one than we have right now. Um, last question before we go to break, uh, we'll just take a quick three minute break. Um, Star Trek or Star Wars. I've never been, I've never seen the, the, difficulty between them. I actually like Stargate better than both uh, franchise though, but uh, I've never been a Trek or Wars person. To me, they're both good series. So I right, we're going to go to break for about three minutes. So if you want to grab a coffee or a snack, now's a good time. So while we're taking a quick break so I can refill my coffee and catch my breath and you can all grab a drink and a snack, I wanted to mention that part two of my interview on John Michael Godier's Event Horizon came out last night, and I'll link part one and two in the video description after the show's over today. They are both from the same chat we had a couple months back, but neither of us is noted for our brevity, indeed a lot was trimmed out and it was still too long for a single show. I also wanted to congratulate John on hitting 100,000 subscribers on his main channel, and also his production team over at Event Horizon, Aaron Knight and Ross Campbell. Ross did a great job on the visuals, and of course that was a factor in the time it took for the second half to come out. I noticed at the end, John's joined me in being one of the few YouTube channels whose episodes have a credit roll. For anyone who didn't know, episodes here on SFIA tend to be written a couple months out, largely because of production time. Tomorrow we're doing our brainstorm session for the late January episodes, and all the audio is already written and recorded through January 17th's upcoming Subterranean Cities episode. Our typical process, once we've picked and brainstormed a topic, is for me to sit down and write a draft, then upload it and a ton of volunteers go to work editing it. Once that's done, I record it and edit the audio, sometimes Eric will help with that, and then we wait for graphics to be made typically a period of over a month. At the end of that, Luca sends me the soundtrack and I add it, the narration, and the various graphics together to make the draft video, which a whole bunch of us then review for errors and rendering glitches. 
When you list off everyone involved in that, from brainstorming to captioning and then on to moderating our various forums and social media spots, it's around a hundred people, a far cry from early days and I think it shows. I've gotten far better on every aspect of production, which has helped a lot, but in the end, it's that team that's made the super majority of the difference and I want to thank them. We'll be right back. Okay, and we're back. Uh, next question, just to pick up from where we left off, Eric asks, have you read Yuval Harari, specifically Homo Deus? Uh, that's familiar. Uh, I think of he's an Israeli historian who talked about uh, Neanderthals and cognitive, uh, the cognitive revolution. Um, I've not read him, but I'm, I'm loosely, very loosely familiar with his work. Uh, basically the notion of human... It, 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 Chronicles kind of the idea of humans moving from the Anathal phase to more modern and abstract thinking, but that's much as I can say about that since I haven't read it. Uh, Peter Fraser asks, what is your realistic near-term expectations of 3D printing in space? I do not think we will ever send a manned mission into space um, beyond the space station that does not have a 3D printer on it again. Nothing's going to go far away without those. It just allows too much um, avoidance of redundancy for things where it's not critical. Like, you need a hammer-on board, uh, and you need it right now when you need it, but a lot of times you don't really need the backup hammer if you can print one off. Um, and uh, there's just too many things where that's going to come in handy. Um, <clears throat> as the technology improves, and in fact that's a big chunk of the Santa Claus machine episode, people have been asking what the Santa Claus machine is about, we'll be looking at a lot of those kind of technologies there and some of the limitations on them. All right. Moving on to the next question, Robin L. asks, Would you say that machine learning is a step in the right direction towards general purpose AI, or do you think that as ever comes it will be in the form of an entirely different technology? I, hmm, we said there's basically three ways to make an AI that's roughly human level. You can copy a human mind um, and then tweak it a little bit. You can build one from scratch, raw programming all the way to the top. Or you can get something that's self-learning. Um, I would usually see the second option, building it from scratch, as the hardest, and the self-learning as the most dangerous. Um, it's probably the pathway we most want to pursue. It's likely to give you an AI that's something we could tailor to some degree uh, for use for application the easiest, but it's not the only way to get there, and it may be too dangerous for some options. We're going to have to see. That's the biggest thing with AI is it could be very useful to us, very dangerous. We've known that for generations now since it first started coming up in, uh, well, I mean, before the 20s, you can go back to Mary Shelley or Olio. But uh, in the 20s, when we first started talking, this was already a big concern. But now, a century later, we all gained to the point where we had to start having genuinely serious conversations about that. And I think we'll see more and more of those in the next decade. And that will tell us where things are going to move out on that. Because I know a lot of people like to think of it as inevitable, but nothing's inevitable uh, when it comes to something that we voluntarily choose to do. And it's very dangerous technology, but also very useful. And we need to know more. So we need to learn more first. We're not at the point yet where we should be banning it or embracing it wholeheartedly, but we're going to probably be in the next couple of decades and we'll need to be thinking about it very seriously. Uh, Dragon King asks, will we see a rocket interplanetary transport system in the next 50 years? 
I, I hate to sound like a pessimist on this, but I think that I would consider it a little bit too soon to be saying that we'd be doing any sort of major transport in the next 50 years between planets. And if we are, it's more likely to be with the asteroid belt. Um, that's the only place we're going to go where we'd be trucking lots of material back home from. Uh, and have you ever considered trying to do a collaboration with Neil deGrasse Tyson? Um, I actually am very fond of him, uh, of his work. And he's actually part of the same network I'm part of, uh, Standard, which is, uh, something that CCB Gray and, uh, in a nutshell, of course, because I acted, uh, startup, uh, have had a chance to meet some really fun folks there. And, uh, I think I'm going on vacation with a bunch of them in January. Um, I certainly wouldn't mind, you know, meeting him to say the least, uh, I've never actually spoken with him though, so yeah, I've never really pondered a collaboration. Um, question: Would you would you live have a vacation home on O'Neill Cylinder? Why or why not? Um, I would vi- if there was an O'Neill Cylinder in orbit. I would have to visit them. I'm I just I'm a little bit too connected to O'Neill Cylinders in discussion for me not to want to go step on one. So that would probably be about the only way to actually get me personally into space. I like I said, I don't like to fly and I don't like to uh, leave the area, but. I would go visit an O'Neill Cylinder, don't be sure. Um, question from Aiden Ockrent. We always imagine starships to be metal. Why not plastic? Also, how would we keep outer space clean of little? Would it be an issue at all considering vastness? Oh yeah, little is an issue. And uh, mostly in orbit, but whenever you're moving fast, anything that you're going to be moving faster than in the local area uh, could trash your ship. As to why we always picture them as metal... Um, I mean, I guess that's probably just something built into us from watching science fiction. There tends to be um, an assumption of uh, metal ships like, you know, sailing ships. Are. And they probably would have a lot of cases where they were, you know, plastic or ceramic. I would tend to think ceramic more than plastic, but you'd probably have many layered holes inside those too. I do not know that I would assume that all ships wouldn't be made out of graphene. We tend to think graphene a lot these days, but... It has its ups and its downs too. It's a very impressive material, but it's not a super material that's going to replace everything else. So, but I suspect that we'll see quite a mixture of you know cameo of various materials being used in starship hull building, and it won't be limited just to metals. Um, <clears throat> question from the real Blath: <laughs> Since your channel, you guys have some interesting usernames you use. Since your channel has grown up quite a lot, did you have people recognizing you around and <laughs> and asking for selfies or stuff like that? If not, how would you react to that? I did actually have one example. Someone had come knocking on my uh, on my door, which I, you know, I they were circulating a petition um, for a, a local issue, and I was telling them at the time I, I couldn't sign the petition because I'm I'm the you know any any petition I sign I, I certainly have the right to sign one like anyone else, but I can't validate that at the board of elections if I've signed it, um, and uh, as a result of that, I typically do not sign petitions, um, but. The next day, somebody else would come around, and we got into chatting. I, I walked him through some of the steps on how to go about making sure that because people get lost on how to do petitions properly, and I think a lot of times when they circulate ones in colleges, they end up projecting like seventy percent of the petitions offered for minor typos. Legally, you have to. Um, but I walked him through some of the steps. Next day, same petition goes by. It's a different person though, and I started talking with him, and um, it turned out he knew who I was, and uh, I was wondering why somebody from the same drive had stopped by twice. Uh, and he just wanted to meet me, and that was actually quite a lot of fun to, to talk to somebody. But uh, please don't show up on my porch knocking, though. <laughs> but uh, that's about the extent of it. And I have quite a few friends in the area, obviously, who know about the channel and say hi or like to watch it. But uh, no, no one's really, you know, come up and recognize me. Of course, I'm not on screen much, so I don't think most people would recognize me as I was walking by anyway. Um, 
which is actually item in IPA4. Uh, let me find that question real quick. Conor, uh, thank you. He says, great channel, highly enlightening. Uh, Mark Zimmerman asks, would you ever consider doing a collab with Mishio Keiku? Uh, same answer on that. I, I, I like him. I, I don't, for some reason, a lot of folks like Bill and I on Yoda Glass Tyson or Keiku are controversial. Same for Musk. I'm, I'm not sure why, but, uh, you know, anytime somebody talks a lot about issues and is doing it live and a lot, they're eventually going to say something that uh, is going to bother somebody. I think it, it, it rolls downhill. Um, it's one of the reasons I don't like to do live shows, to be honest. But yeah, if he was available and interested, I'd certainly be very glad to meet him and do some kind of collaboration. But again, he's another guy I've never met. Um, question from Gorgonopsido. You think some interstellar ships, assuming no FTL technology, would end up as long-term social experiments such as the vaults in Fallout? I have never played the video game Fallout or any of its sequels. Um, you would... Anytime you have data, you're going to use that data. Um, you know, if you're studying a plague or an epidemic that's happened, uh, you don't say, oh, well, this plague is going on. It'll be horrible to use this data. You use the data. Uh, there's a difference between that and actually conducting experiment, like infecting people with a, a bit of plague, like Ishii did in Japan uh, um, in, the, in World War II. And um, I could very easily see us doing a lot of studies on uh, colony ships or colonies, I, I'd be, you'd be negligent not to. Uh, but I don't think we would build one for that. I don't think we would. Certainly some other civilization, human or otherwise, might do that at some point, but I can't see us doing it. Uh, Apex Tyrannus asks, what was your MOS in the army? I actually had two. I was a 13 Bravo initially, though I almost never actually manned a howitzer. Um, 13 Bravo is a field gunnery artillery, uh, artilleryman uh, gunner. Um, and then, uh, later on, I, I reclassified. I was mostly a 92 Yankee a lot of the times, but a 92 Alpha was the final MOS I had. They sent me to Mississippi in the middle of the summer for a retrain on that, and then to Montana in the middle of December for that. And then they asked me if I wanted to re-enlist and get promoted, and I told them no. So, <laughs> not, not the only reason I left the Army, but that was pretty much the end of my interest at that point in time. Uh, but 92 series logistic, 13 series is field artillery, 11 is infantry, for instance. Every one of them has a, an area. Um, next question. I'm, uh, comment nano freak asks, I am developing science fiction. I am a developing science fiction writer. Your videos have been invaluable to me in building up a knowledge base of scientifically solid concepts. Thank you for your inspiration and work. Thank you. Uh, question from Archaeist Alpha. Would it be worth it to you being sent with a one-way ticket to satisfy your curiosity whether alien life exists and what it is like? Um, I would rather send somebody who was an expert and actually wanted to go. Um, I'm more than happy to give armchair advice from back home on Earth. Um, I mean, again, I grew up watching space opera, uh, Star Trek, Doctor Who, all that stuff, so it's certainly fascinating, but uh, so is climbing a mountain. I haven't had a particular desire to do that. I haven't gone hiking in years, even. Um... <clears throat> I've gotten very boring in the last decade since I left the service, and I am very glad to live a very boring life and would like it to stay that way. Titanium Town asks, Do you think that the Earth will ever unify as one body against other planets like in TV shows, uh, or that we'll ever have a unified solar system against other inhabited solar systems? Forever is a long time. Um, nations unify into bigger nations, typically from an external threat. Not necessarily a violent threat, but it, you know, it could be something as simple as trade wars and advantage in, in terms advantageous uh, positioning in terms of diplomacy. Um, and you could end up with like a unified Earth for that reason, but the last planet I would expect to actually have a unified government would be the Earth. 
Uh, I would not be surprised if you had like giant, you know, interplanetary empires of trillions of people, uh, you know, with various colony stations here and there throughout the solar system or even other solar systems who still had a chunk of Earth that was there, you know, where the capital was at, uh, that was small and they had borders with. You know, you could have the, uh, the Malta Empire that had its capital on Malta and controlled half of Mars or something like that. So I do not think that that's, uh, something that would ever tend to happen. I don't expect us to have any external threats to us that would require that any time in, in the near future. 10, 20,000 years down the road, if there are lots of interstellar empires, um, everything settled nearby us, I could see a unified Ortheo, something inside of Kardashev, two civilization here maybe, but I, the more peaceful and diplomatic civilizations get, the less likely I think they are to tend to unify into larger conglomerations because there's less impotence to do so. Uh, and there's, generally a motivation to want to stay as local as possible though that's just my opinion titanium town do you think that the earth will ever oh sorry we just read that one uh fred red asks what do you think should be done about all the space debris um see the upward bound orbital infrastructure episode probably laser rooms would be a good one in the short term mostly just trying to make sure we don't do it a lot of places companies nations are kind of lazy about uh, what they do with their dead satellites in terms of pushing them into graveyard orbits. Best to push them down to the atmosphere when possible so they burn up. Um, <clears throat> down the road, I think a laser boom approach would be the more likely approach. And, and again, we, we discussed that in um, older infrastructure earlier this year. Uh, question from PS. Ever consider devoting some vids to sci-fi 10 to 20 years out and tactical strategic implications of things like cheap drone swarms, I'm losing my voice, changing current landscape. Well, we did do the attack of the drones um, but about two months back. Um, I was just track of these things because I write them like two months before they premiere. Um, sorry, we just did flat off yesterday, but my brain's busy thinking about the late January episodes. <laughs> I would like to do some more of those. People sometimes say we should do stuff closer to home, but then when I do a video that's like only 10 or 20 years in advance, someone will say, oh, I, I hate when you do these near-term videos. Go do one in the fall future instead. So I try to mix it up a bit, but um, to be honest, I get kind of bored talked about warfare because it, it's very hard to do so, and uh, there's so many armchair quarterbacks on things like that. War is very unpredictable strategically. Um, if you think of a chaotic mess that people, it, people win who uh, basically don't so much know what the situation is as are less ignorant or incorrect about it than the opposition. It's a guessing game where strategy changes constantly from really small things. And um, I really feel like I'm reading tea leaves when I discuss it even 10 or 20 years from now. That's why we limit ourselves to just what you know science tells us definitely is or is not on the table as opposed to what methods would be preferable. Um, <clears throat> Invisible, what technology are you most looking forward to? Longevity. I, I, I noticed, uh, as I tell people, I'm 26, uh, and, and of course I remember the 80s very well for a 26 year old, but, um, I had shaved my beard off for most of the beginning of the year and I grew it back for a costume I was wearing for a medieval, uh, medieval renaissance fair, uh, up in New York. And, uh, when I got back from that, I was deciding whether I was going to keep the beard or not, and I looked in the mirror and I saw I had some gray hair on it, and, uh, I immediately shaved it off. I've grown it back since, but, uh, if there was a technology I'm particularly looking forward to, it definitely would be life extension. Uh, <clears throat> Swords of the Ark asks, Love the channel. Who was your favorite commander of the SGC? Hammond, O'Neill, Dr. Weir, or Landry? Um, Hammond 
is always to me the person I think was in charge for that. And of course, I, I really did like Richard Dean Anderson sticking around for season eight as the commander. It gave um I can't think of a name right now, Colonel Carter. Um I cannot remember the actress's name. Wow. Uh it was nice to see her playing that role though as the commander of the actual team. Um I did like Landry. I did not like Dr. Wheel when she was a different actress, they changed the actress. I actually did not like her character too much in Atlantis. I did like her on Stargate SG-1. Um, nothing against the actress. She did a great job. I just feel the writers didn't do a good job writing her into a leadership role uh, with um, military officer Shepard. Um, Major Shepard. I confuse him with Mass Effect. They had uh, a really good cast for Atlantis. and I, I actually enjoyed Atlantis quite a lot, but the first couple seasons didn't have the best writing of characters in some cases. They went kind of heavy on some of the stereotypes and didn't really have a chance to explore the characters too much. Um, but as we get into further seasons, uh, it was quite a lot of fun. And uh, I really liked Dr. Beckett, and I missed they killed his character off in season three, though they kind of brought him back. But uh, they did replace him with, with Jewel Slate uh, from Firefly, and I thought she did a great job in that role, too. It was certainly good to see her again since... I am a Firefly fan, not quite as fanatical about it as some people, but I always regret that, that show got canceled when it did. Um, to answer the question, though, uh, General Hammond was my favorite commander of the SGC. Uh, question from Kincaid. Do you think that dating apps like Tinder will have negative effects on our species over long time frames, given what they select for? I have never done online dating. Uh, I think I tried, actually, no, I did try it out one time when a friend pushed me towards it. Uh, I know Tinder is an app that you can use to look at people and see who in your area you want to date. And I'm sure that there is going to continue to be an electronic service towards it, but I'm just old enough to remember when dating online was a very strange and weird thing. And, uh, it's still, I, I can't really speak to it because I just don't know much about it. It's still new to me, even though it's like 20 years old. <laughs> so for a futurist, I'm not that good about, uh, getting into new technology right away. Um, question from Antifusion. Any thoughts on the Moon Direct proposal by Dr. Zubin? Anything you would like to see added or issues you would address? As someone was just talking to me earlier today about the, more of the Mars profile, but using power satellites for that. Um, I think I've mentioned before I'm a very big fan of Dr. Zubin's, and um, I've actually never met him, though, strangely enough. We are Facebook friends, but I don't think we've ever talked. Um he is very detailed in terms of when he puts these plans together. I would consider him probably just the expert on putting together these kind of space missions from a futurism angle. And um, I have not really dug into it probably to the degree I should, just because to me it seems like it's one of those things where when it's ready to go, when we know more about it, we'll get more details. But until then, just the basic framework seemed fine to me. I didn't see anything that I'd want to add or subtract from that per se. Uh, Nicola asks, what do you think will happen first? Will we digitize our minds or be able to build our neocylinders? Technically, we can already build an O'Neill cylinder. Um, I mean, again, that's, a, that's just a cost issue. Um, cheap space travel or digital intelligence? I'd probably go with an O'Neill cylinder first, though, a more modest one, just because there's not really much need for a full-blown O'Neill cylinder yet. Um... And again, I don't think digitizing intelligence is one of those things that's going to take a really long time for us to, to get into. I think it is something for the 24th century, but I think there's going to be a lot of resistance to actually doing it with humans, even volunteer humans early on. 
<clears throat> Leo Foman asks, what is the process for selecting questions to be answered during the live stream? Uh, actually, probably not a bad one. Um, there are four or five people who are Discord administrators and moderators right now who are looking at the, uh, the YouTube live stream. I'm actually not even, it's over on the other model. Uh, I'm looking at a picture of myself on OBS, which is the live streaming software I use. And over here, just the right on the screen, I have a Discord chat window open and they are putting questions into it from there. Um, I do not know what criteria they actually use to select for them other than I say, please pick the ones that are mostly legible and stay away from topics they know I'm not going to answer. So, for instance, I'm not going to tell you what my political affiliation or religious affiliations are. That's, to me, always something separate from the channel. Uh, um, let's see. Nabil asks, have you ever played Elite Dangerous? No, many people I know are very fond of that game, but I have not. Uh, John Grello, I've also never played Stellaris. People ask that a lot, too. Um... John Grello asks, question, I've always imagined that artificial intelligence would suffer the same issues organic intelligence would suffer from, such as disorders that humans suffer from. Um, probably. I, I mean, they, they, depending on how different it is, a lot of the mental disorders we have are very keyed into our... I, I, mean, I hate to use terms like lizard brain or primate brain, but really these layers of architecture that the brain has developed over you know millions of years of evolution. And those all basically what are responsible for all particular versions of that. So I don't know that an AI would have a sense of humor, for instance, or have a sense of fun. I suspect they'd have something analogous to it, and they might actually have the exact same thing if we were built them up like us. But the same is going to apply for a lot of, um, a lot of, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> With AI, you would expect there to be potential psychological issues. And I always think of, um, was it Susan Calvin from the old Isaac Asimov robot series, uh, was the robo-psychologist for U.S. robots and uh, one of my favorite science fiction characters, Susan Calvin. If you've never read the uh, Asthma Robot novels, I strongly recommend them, both the ones that are set in the U.S. robots phase with Susan Calvin and the Elijah Bailey novels that followed up. Um, but yeah, I think they would definitely have mental disorders that could develop, but whether or not they'd parallel what we have or not would be very iffy. Uh Miasco asks, what's your favorite dessert cake or comfort food? Um, probably something with chocolate or strawberries. I do not actually eat a lot of sweets or snacks or sodas or things like that. Um, but I am fond of chocolate. Um, Invisil asks, would you replace a biological body for a robotic one if it would extend your life? I don't consider those two. I mean, that's a false dichotomy to me. Um, you could potentially clone a body that was highly roboticized. You could potentially um have a cybernetic body that was mostly biological you could have a robot that's built mostly out of biological material or ceramics instead of metal um i would not have any problem replacing bits and pieces of myself if there was something wrong with the uh with the actual body part itself if it depends on what the option is and same you know how many people turn down a pacemaker uh or a cochlear implant or you know i'm wearing glasses so i'm already a cyborg uh, so to me, that's just, it's going to vary by person. I'd never force anybody to take on a prosthetic tooth, for instance, but teeth fillings are pretty normal. And I expect that same as we had objections to things like artificial hearts when they first came out. I suspect that any given generation of technology gets, you know, invented as a prosthetic within a generation or two, then they'll be passe that nobody even talks about except for people who have very strong convictions on the matter. Uh, <clears throat> question, uh, 
from Eric, how do you think the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 will affect the future of space, and should it be repealed? Not repealed, but replaced at some point in time. Um, it's a basic working treaty. When they put it together, they were not trying to make something that was going to last forever and cover all bases. They were addressing matters that were of concern right then. And um, so they knew it was going to need to be updating, left mechanisms in place for updating it. And uh, we will need to do so, and we'll need to do so many times. Um, you know, there's going to become a time when space gets militarized, just because most people will live in space one day, I should assume. At that point in time, that's probably going to end up happening. Uh, we are almost done. We're going to take a couple more questions and then close out for the day. Uh, Kerry Miller asks, what hypothetical sport would you like to participate in the future as a superhuman? Uh, also, should people donate to SENS Research to make it happen? I'd certainly encourage folks to get involved with SENS. I, I never direct people to donate to one thing or other than the channel, obviously. I, please donate to SFIA, but they certainly have been always very responsible with donations they've been given. And um, I would certainly encourage people to look into them more. But when it comes to picking a foundation to support, that's a personal decision people have to make themselves. Um as to what sport, I, would, I mean, I was uh, I played soccer as a kid, uh, football for everybody outside the U.S. Um, I always hate making that difference. It's a soccer league. Football is a very wide range of sports, of which soccer is one of the types. Uh, it's a soccer association. Uh, side tangents. But soccer is a game I'm still fond of. I don't actually watch too much, but it's the one I played growing up. And uh, that would be the one I wouldn't mind playing again, I suppose. I, nothing's really stopped me from doing it now, and it's not popular in my area. Um, White Weasel Gaming asks, what kinds of viewers does your channel mainly attract? Personally, I find your channel as a very useful reference for science fiction world building. There are actually a lot of authors uh, involved with the channel. Some, many of them are you know, aspiring authors, new authors, independent authors. But we have a fair number of uh, bigger names that are published who I occasionally get emails from, and that's kind of fun. But, uh, you know, it's... I don't know what kind of audience does does get attracted to this channel. Um... I like to think it's a very smart, civilized, and sober group of people, and that's mostly been true. We have a fair share of trolls and things like that at times, but without naming other channels by name, I've noticed the comments on a lot of other science channels tend to be much more abrasive and and, and uh, irrespectful, disrespectful than, than we tend to get here, and I'm very grateful for that, because uh, I, I mean, that, that always is polite. I certainly don't wish anything bad towards them. Um, it's just we have a very good audience, and they've always been a very, uh, you have always been uh, just a lot of fun to, to talk to. I think I'm probably not the only person who always had a lot of ideas as a kid or as a young adult that they wanted to talk to with people about, and they never really got the chance to uh, to do so. There just weren't that many people, or maybe you had one friend you could talk to about that. And one of the cool things about this channel is that I now have thousands of people I can talk to about any of this topic, and uh, yeah, it's just, it's very neat. So it's... That's the kind of audience we have, I guess. Um, I guess we'll take one more question. That would have been a good one to end on. Um, how drastically do you think society will change when self-replicating machines are invented? That's a good question to end with, too, because that is the topic for our December uh, episode, The Santa Claus Machine, uh, and, of course, seeing the stars after that. We're going to look a lot at what self-replicating technology is going to do, what its limitations are, what its strengths are. And a lot of the misconceptions that tend to evolve around these things. Again, with a lot of technologies, they have potential, and uh, people sometimes treat them a little bit too much like a magic wand. And we're going to see some of the uses for that this upcoming December. And the schedule should have been coming up for the entire month as we there it goes right now on the screen. 
Um, that will be on December 20th for the Santa Claus machine. There is also a large chunk of the topic for uh, seeing the Star Wars, kind of a two-parter there. So I'm certainly, it's going to be a fun month. Uh, I think a lot of folks are looking forward to kickstarting space industry. That was a fun episode to do too. So we will be uh, moving into the winter phase. We got the whole list of episodes coming up. And uh, we do have a bit of an exception this month for our book of the month. We are actually going to do Terry Pratchett's Discord novel, Hogfather. Uh, if you haven't actually read that book or read any of the Terry Pratchett ones, they're just, they're wonderful. So if you like Douglas Adams, you'll like Terry Pratchett. And if you haven't read Douglas Adams, then go read that. I wouldn't even say if you didn't like Douglas Adams, because I've never heard anybody say that. So, um, and on that note, I think we'll get closing out. Thank you everybody for joining me. We probably won't do one of these for December just because we right by New Year's, but we might. And if not, we'll be back in January. And until then, I will see you all on Thursday, and thanks for joining us, and have a great week.